0: Hi, this is Johnny Eccles from Love, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Pantheon Podcasts presents... From Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music, with Pleasant Gaming. You are invited to join... The Hollywood Princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaiman as she brings you The Devil's Music. Hi,
1: this is Pleasant Gaiman. Welcome to The Devil's Music, a Pantheon podcast. A little bit about me, I'm a rock and roll witch from Hollywood, California. My lifelong obsession with music and the occult started around the age of 12. In the 70s, I was one of the first punks in LA, and as a teenager, I worked at the Whiskey and made a Xerox fanzine called Lobotomy, which led me to writing for, like, every major rock publication you can think of. In the 80s and the 90s, I fronted three bands. I'm a best-selling author with eight books out and more on the way. For the past 30 years, I've toured around the globe teaching and performing dance. Maybe you've seen me in music videos, feature films, and documentaries. I'm also an actor with several film credits. Oh, and look for me in the new Go-Go's documentary. Find out more about me at com. That's P L E A S A N T. G-E-H-M-A-N dot com. I'm really excited to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network of rock and roll shows. Everyone here tells stories about the music we love so much, each one with a different twist. Find them at all the places you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, anywhere you listen. And make sure to go on over to Pantheon and recommend us to your friends. Today's guest is my dear friend, Steve Balderson. He's an internationally acclaimed, award-winning film director, a screenwriter, author, speaker, teacher, and a hypnotist. I've had the pleasure of knowing him for years, and I've also appeared in almost all of his films. Film critic Roger Ebert has praised him wildly in every actor he's ever worked with, including Mink Stoll and the late Karen Black, just adores him. Steve is truly one of the most talented and driven people I've ever met, not to mention super funny and twisted. See for yourself.
2: Today, I'm going to be interviewing my favorite film director ever and also someone I've worked with for ages, Mr. Steve Balderson, who is a really ridiculously talented guerrilla indie filmmaker with I don't even know how many films under his belt, but I've been in all of them except one. He's worked with incredible stars like Mink Stoll. Karen Black and me <laughs> hi Steve. how are you doing?
3: I'm good. How are you?
2: I'm good. Um, so let's um let's start off like trying to talk about uh, how many films you've done, how you started doing films, and uh, how we met.
3: Well, <clears throat> I think technically if you count, all the documentaries and the the fictional features i think it's 17 features
2: and this isn't counting the the stuff that you did in kansas when you were like eight years old right no i'm just no, kidding cor-
3: no correct it's not <laughs> no the stuff that i did up until no i'm I'm counting from pep squad which was in we filmed it in 97 1998 And I would consider that my first film because it was the first film that was actually on 35 millimeter film. And it was like a, a, my first real professional project. So since then there have been 17.
2: And and Um, so Pep Squad was, um, Pep, I went to Cannes with Steve for Pep Squad because I had a song in the movie. And that was when, before we started working together with me acting in his films, but, um, the Cannes the Can Film Festival with you is one of the most insane experiences I've ever had.
3: It was unbelievable. And I was 22 years old. And to go from small town, rural Kansas to Cannes <laughs> with no, zuss, no zass about it, although there was lots of sass, um, was a big, huge culture shock for me. I mean, it was really intense. I mean, I loved it. It was a lot of fun, but I also told myself that I would never return unless I was up for the Palme d'Or or on the jury.
2: But um, one of the one of the craziest things that happened in Cannes during Pep Squad was Pep Squad was a sort of a satire film, <laughs> like lots of Steve's films about um school shootings and that was when they were first coming into the forefront and um everybody in Cannes was French or European and they kept calling it Peep Squad. Um and 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 they were like Peep Squad eh, school sh- shooting
3: <laughs> <laughs> totally. No it was crazy. It was it was unreal. It was the most amazing time and it's one of those things that I'll I'll cherish forever because it's like, well, first of all, how rare is it for anybody to have their first movie show during the Cannes Film Festival? I didn't even know that, you know, I was so young and naive and, you know, from the middle of nowhere that I didn't realize that all of us sitting around that table at dinner, the night where we were trying to both hit on the wine steward, <laughs> uh, <laughs> How and rare! I,
2: wa- I won that.
3: <laughs> oh, I know you did, but we didn't know until the end. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, your mom kept wanting to know if anybody on anybody that was with the whole crew that came to the Cannes Film Festival if anyone was getting any action.
3: <laughs> no, I know those were the days. <laughs> the late '90s were the days. Um, yeah, so uh, we met. Because Jeanette Napolitano from Concrete Blonde was scoring that film, and she had worked on a recording of uh, something that you did with Christian Hoffman. And it was this amazing song, and it was part of it was part spoken word, part like, I don't know, sort of jazzy, uh David Lynch like. I don't know, it was just this really cool feeling. And I thought, oh, what's this song? Like I, I came over one day to the studio and she had it playing.
2: It was I, called I, Super Mega Jaja."
3: Yeah, and I was like, what is this? And I, I said, my Zsa
2: Zsa Gabor fetish come to life?
3: <laughs> which was unbelievable. And it just, it sounded so perfect. So I asked her to just plop it down in this scene. And it, from the moment the scene started on the exact frame, through every frame during the entire sequence, which had already been edited, the song and the beats fit like it had been scored to this piece, this sequence.
2: Yeah, that was crazy. Every little movement fit. And wh- when I saw it, I, I was blown away. It, it, it was, it was crazy. So crazy.
3: It was totally crazy. And then I, I asked her to introduce us. And I think you were doing a reading at Skylight Books uh, the following week. And I went down, and that's where we met. And when I saw you, I thought we're both a thousand years old spiritually or more and we've connected so many times in so many lifetimes and that's when it began.
2: Yeah, that was pretty obvious. Um, Stephen and I, before we even, well, we had started working together, but this was before Can, we started writing each other like pages and pages and pages long, um, Letters to each other, like they were like diaries. This was like pre-email time, where maybe there was like the beginnings of email, but we used to just write and illustrate these letters that were insane. But for um, let's skip ahead, though, for yes. our listeners' interest, and um, we'll we'll just jump ahead. Let I want to talk about Firecracker, which was an absolutely crazy movie that Steve did. And it was based on a true life murder that had occurred in his hometown of Wamigo, Kansas. And the murder took place in the town. Um, The kid that committed the murder, and he murdered his older brother, um, was involved in this crazy affair with a singer at a sideshow. Um, from a carnival that came that came through town and this was like in the 50s I think was it in the 50s when the murder occurred
3: yeah the early 50s
2: okay so this was in the early 50s and it was legendary in Kansas Um, I don't think that I think anybody would have to hunt for it in in true crime just in general because it wasn't like a serial killing or something but So everyone in Kansas grew up knowing about this wild murder that happened at a carnival and Steve became so obsessed with it that he started writing the film Firecracker around it because the murder had occurred on the 4th of July. Um, But concurrently, the boy at the time, but the man later, um, had just been released from prison. So Steve got him to be on the, like an advisor for the film and the film was shot at the exact same carnival that had been coming through town for decades. And it was shot in the actual murder house, not to mention the fact that Karen Black, like the famous actress was playing the mom in it and a dual role as the singer in the carnival. And that we got, um, we got because i i was the the one that sort of inst like instigated this we got mike patton to play frank like the horrifying sadistic head of the carnival so in this movie firecracker before i go on with it just letting all you listeners know that pretty much everybody in the whole cast every character which was almost all of them were based on real characters either got raped or completely sexually and psychologically abused or, um, you know, like bludgeoned to death. Yeah. (laughs) It was definitely a feel good hit, but also Jane Weedlein from the Go-Go's was in it and there was real circus freaks. And I'm saying that in quotes, just to be PC, like George the giant, who's like eight feet tall. And, um, Katzen and the the Anima who was in the um, Jim Rose Circus sideshow. And what was Kathy's last name?
3: Well, she was the daughter of Lobster Boy. So she played Lobster Girl in the movie, Kathy Berry.
2: Lobster Boy was also like a sort of a sadistic, crazy carnival freak in real life.
4: Yeah. So this
2: this was just like a recipe for the best kind of like disaster ever but tell tell everyone how you started working with karen black to begin with and then i'm going to tell my favorite and from from that shoot with her okay
3: so when i first wrote this character and well both of them like i had seen trilogy of terror of course and day of the locust and i thought well if there's anyone on earth who could play two totally opposite parts in the same movie it's karen black so I had this concept and I, I wrote it and I sent it to her. I don't remember how I did. It was like during this time period, I got Debbie Harry on the phone. I got Dennis Hopper on the phone. They're calling me back. I'm going to Karen Black's house and I'm living in this little tiny town in Kansas. I don't know how I did it.
2: As like, <laughs> but, as like like barely old enough to drink legally.
3: <laughs> exactly. And so I sent her this and she read it and we talked and she said, no. And then I, well said that's unacceptable. <laughs> so I, I wrote her another letter and I called her back and I maybe it made maybe she had a note and I rewrote something or I, you know I sent it back and I said Karen here's the new script you've got to do this, and she said no, <laughs> and I said okay that's unacceptable, and I was at this for at least six to eight months and I came out to L.A. to meet with I think it was on the trip that I went to Dennis Hopper's house and. I decide, you know, I'm going to call Karen again, and I'm just going to go to her house tomorrow. (laughs) And so I... I Hashtag stalker. (laughs) Totally. And I showed up, and when she saw my face... Well, first of all, I was there in her living room waiting for, like, 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, there were these big, white, plush sofas, and I, I walked in, and I'm like... You sit here, she'll be with you. You know, it's one of those things. And then I I sat there and I waited and I waited and my brows started sweating and my armpits started sweating. And I was like, oh my God, there's no air in here. What am I going to do? And then 45 minutes later, I see her like 100 feet away, leaving a room and going into another one. <laughs> but when I see her, she looks unbelievable, amazing. Like, She's got like the perfect smoky eye makeup and the hair is perfect and the the robe is perfect. And then she disappears again for another 10 minutes. And I'm sitting there on the sofa and she walks into the room finally. And she sits down and she says, you look nothing like the person who I thought wrote that script. The person who I thought wrote that script looked very gaunt and very scary and very sharp and angular and sort of dangerous. And you look very friendly and, and happy and nice and soft and, and sort of cuddly. And I was like, well, okay, thank you. And she said, okay, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> <Really>?
2: <laughs> I never even heard this before, that's crazy. Yeah,
3: and, and one of the things she said in that was, she, she told me this sentence, I admire your persistence and i actually took that line and added it to the script after she said it to me at that point so that when she leaned out the carnival sideshow window of her gypsy wagon and she looked down at the boy she says i admire your persistence
2: oh i remember that that's crazy and that's why it's there okay so let's talk about um the shoot of a firecracker i'm going to tell a story about my first day on it so first of all Steve cast me as Estelle, a three-breasted carnival burlesque dancer in the sideshow. And so I, ha- I was trying to make my own costume and um, it was hard. So I called my friend Willie who designed for Victoria's Secret and Felina Braziers. And I just called them up and I said, if I was like, what would you do to make a, a bra with three cups? And he said, why would you want that? And I said, because I'm going to play a sideshow dancer in a in a carnival movie. And he said, oh, what's your cup size? What's your band size? And the next day he sent over three different prototypes that all had the, the labels of it in there. And I picked one and then he made another one. So I decorated it. And then he also ordered me a mastectomy prosthetic for the third boob. Because um to get a real uh special effects like third breast put on would have probably cost more than the entire budget of Steve's entire movie at that point. So he just like he gave he threw in like a free mastectomy prosthetic, but then it got lost during it got lost from FedEx during a hurricane in Rhode Island or something. Remember we were panicking about the boob coming? <laughs>
3: You were panicking about the boob every other day.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. Because then when I finally got to Kansas and had it, um, and we did a makeup test, it took like an hour and a half to to get it applied to my chest. And I was sitting there topless in Steve's parents' living room with people from the crew walking by and averting their eyes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I was like, no, you're going to see this every day of the shoot. So finally, we got it down to um, about It took about an hour, but I'd have to, it was also the middle of September in Kansas and it was so fucking humid. And the boob was put on with like a combination of like latex and like toupee tape and mortician's wax and all this stuff. And the trailers that we had for the, um, for, you know, for hair and makeup and wardrobe were just like, like, you know, 70s RVs that people from, you know, Juan Migo and other parts in Kansas had like, just sort of donated to the production. So they were all these like falling apart things with like broken screen doors and stuff. And in the makeup trailer, that makeup artist, Linda, um, she was like, she'd be putting my boob on every morning and we'd be all like tired and sipping coffee. And she'd have to like be pressing it up against my chest. And so some production assistant would knock on the door and Linda would be in the, with her hand, one hand holding my boob on and the other hand brandishing a fly swatter going, God fucking damn it, fucking flies, God damn it, God damn it. And she, would, she scared everybody. So my first scene with Karen was, um, we had to be assaulted in, in a carnival trailer and I had made the absolute mistake of watching for like the 400th time I watched The Day of the Locust, which was always one of my favorite movies. And then after I watched it that night, I had a complete panic attack when I found out that my very first scene in the movie was getting raped in a carnival trailer with Karen. Do you remember this, Steve?
3: I do. And it's so amazing because, of course, I had no idea all the, the pressure that anybody else was going through. I was just making a movie. And so it's like, well, today we're going to do the rape scene.
2: yeah we're gonna start out with the rape scene so i was like hyperventilating not because i was getting raped but because i was working with karen black and it idolized her for years anyway um also my boyfriend at the time james aka dirty had never been on a film set before ever and he drove out from from la um to To you know, to visit me on on set, but also to be an extra. So, when they were casting all the carneys, like everybody had to get fixed up with makeup and wardrobe, and uh, all the the wardrobe people looked at him and said, "Oh, you're fine," you know, because he just looked like a crazy carney, you know, he was, <laughs> totally. all, he was all dirty and filthy and stuff. So anyway, he's sitting there. He's going to be in this scene. Karen Black and I were there, and she was. She was talking to me about acting, and I was trying not to act like I was losing it. And then this guy walks in and goes, um, "It was like some Nebraska college student, farm boy, cute boy that you had hired." He walks in and he goes, "Hi, my name's Sean, and I'll be your rapist today." So that kind of like <laughs> broke <the> ice, <laughs> and um, um so. He, I don't think he'd ever really been in a film before. So, so you got Karen to, um, you got you got Dirty to hold Karen, and then Sean was gonna rape me while Karen was being held down, and the the camera was really close, and and Sean didn't have very much film acting experience, so the first few cuts, he was holding me, but it didn't look like we were really struggling, and then you kept going cut, cut because it didn't look realistic, so both you and I started explaining to him like how to make it look more realistic when the camera was that close. So then when we did that take, I remember we were fighting so hard that my spike heel scraped his whole arm and it started bleeding. So you were like, okay, cut, cut, cut. And then I think he moved the camera so we, we couldn't see like the big giant scratch mark on his arm. And then we started again. And then because it was so hot and humid where we were filming it and we had just been struggling, I was sweating so hard, the boob fell off, the third boob. So with a big fighting <laughs> noise and you were like, cut, we lost the boob. <laughs> <laughs> so after we got fixed that up, you know, and that took a while. Then we started um, the rape scene again and it was going really well until it was going really well, meaning we were fighting like cats and dogs while he was trying to rape me until Dirty Threw Karen Black aside like a rag doll and jumped on top of Sean and started punching him. And then you're like, "Cut! Cut! What the fuck is going on?" And he's like, "I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He's hurting my girlfriend."
3: <laughs> no, but it was, but the that,
2: most- that was that was how the filming started for me, at least that day.
3: Yeah. Well, and it was the perfect take. I mean, it was it, it was so realistic. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, that was crazy. What's um, um But what was um what was your favorite? Uh, like, talk about working with Karen and a uh, memory you have of her, and also about Mike Patton because that was it was that was crazy. He 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 was and is, but at that time was such a gnarly rock star. And then um, that was his first movie.
3: Well, the f- cool thing I was just talking to Mike last week and and reminiscing a little bit. And uh, we were talking originally about him playing sort of the sidekick to Dennis Hopper. Mm -hmm. And so Dennis wanted to play that character and he was adamant about it, Dennis was, Dennis Hopper. And so uh, I entertained that for a little while. And at one point, when we couldn't get the funding to make it with Dennis, I thought, well, then Mike should play this part because Mike's actually just as crazy and gritty and insane as Dennis is. And he should show us his version of, of Dennis Hopper like from Blue Velvet, you know, something like that. Yeah. And um, Mike was really hesitant. And, and I, I convinced him by saying that it's not like it's theater, it's not stage. Making a movie is just like making a record. So you go into the studio and if the take isn't perfect, you do a second take, you know, or you punch it in, or you, you do sort of an edit. And so I, I said, you know, we could do it a thousand times. It doesn't matter. It, what matters is you have the freedom to choose again. If it didn't work, choose again. And he was like, oh, that makes me feel a little bit more comfortable because the idea of like going in on a set and like performing it perfectly the first time, like you're on stage, is terrifying to some people, especially if it's in a field that's similar, but not in their ballpark, like in, in what they're used to. Um, so that was cool. Like, and I'm, I'm glad I did that because he also played the dual parts and he played the brother who was the alcoholic and abuser and also the abusive carnival owner. And what was so amazing about him is that he did those parts so drastically different that afterwards people didn't recognize him.
2: Yeah, People they didn't did.
3: know that it was him. No, it was crazy. One guy was like, you know, the the carnival guy was crazy, but who played the brother? He was amazing. And I'm like, the <laughs> same guy. <laughs> you know? I don't know. It was amazing. And and working with Karen was always awesome because she would always bring something to the table that was this sort of magical... I, I don't know how to... I, Spiritual is almost the right way to say it. I'm not religious, but there was something religious about watching her work. It was it came and it was just um full of energy, not of this planet.
2: Like she was and, channeling. It was I thought it was yes. channeling.
3: Totally. And she a number of years later, um, I can't remember exactly what year it was, but uh, she was dying of pancreatic cancer and we had one of our final phone calls. And she told me, do you want to know what it's like to know you're truly alive? And I said, absolutely. And she said, it's in the unknown. If you go down this road a thousand times and you know what's coming up ahead of you and you can see this tree in this village and you know the traffic's going to get worse you just sort of check out but if you go down this road that you've never been down you don't know what's up ahead you don't know what's around the bend so you are very alert and very present you're totally alive and there is no better place to be and when i heard that i was like wow yeah you're right i don't know exactly what that means i need to experience that i need to find the truth and the experience in that so then i incorporated that into my filmmaking work from that day forward uh and for that i will always be indebted and grateful to her because that was like a sort of a a gift and working with her was a gift and she was unbelievably talented and will be immortal in celluloid history for eternity so there you have it yeah and you also worked with
2: her in stock as well as mink stall.
4: The warden said, Come out with your hands up in the air. You don't stop this ride,
1: you all gonna get the chair.
4: Two gun the tilda said, It's too late to quit. Pass the dynamite, Molly, cause man, there's the ride. To help them win the fight. Drove up to the prison in the middle of the night. HM trooper, he looks so tall and fine. All the chicks went crazy
2: up in stuck was a black and white women in prison movie that I was very honored to play um uh a dyke cop killing hooker on death row. <laughs> well of course <laughs> in the role she was born to play no. <laughs> aside from the three-breasted for dancer. dance
3: yeah of course no that was hilarious i mean it was shooting in macon georgia where we actually another humid place <laughs> oh my god i know like i after moving from kansas to los angeles and not having the humidity i will i not again <laughs> there will not be a humid moment in my life again um it was so surreal going to make in georgia to do a women in prison movie where of course everybody's you know very stylized and it's jazzy and they're all wearing stiletto heels in prison you know and,
2: and jane, jane weedlin was in that too
3: yes jane weedlin susan trailer minkstall karen black you uh, it was amazing. Starina Johnson was it was one of her first films, and she was unbelievable in it. And Stacy Cunningham was unbelievable as the guard. Guard. Um, and we filmed in the actual prison. Do you remember but, that but, day? But, but, we that
2: yeah. Scene? Oh my God. Do I remember the prison? But I have to. I have to interject what, what you did to us on the first day. Oh yeah. In the in the old building. Um, there was some really giant old abandoned building in the old part of downtown Macon. And um Steve had had prison cells built into that. So he had all of us girls come up there to just to check them out. And they're like, go in your cells. Like, maybe you want to decorate them or something. And uh, Mink Stoll <laughs> and I had already been, <clears throat> we'd already been um communicating. Like, we'd been calling each other. And I couldn't believe I was getting the chance now to work, not you know, not just having worked with Karen Black on a movie, but now also Mink Stoll, who I'd been idolizing for the same amount of time as Karen Black. And Mink Stoll and I were going to be cellies. And so she was a religious zealot that had like murdered a bunch of like FBI agents or something (laughs) in a shootout. Um, But we were going to be cellmates, So we decided that there before we even got to the set, we decided that we were trying to figure out, we thought there was going to be bunk beds and we were going, well, who would have the top bunk, you or me? And and then I made a shank out of a toothbrush. I was like sitting there on my driveway for hours, like sharpening the end of a plastic toothbrush. And I sent a picture of it on my flip phone to Mink Stoll, and it's that I made a shank, and then I emailed it to everybody in the cast, and everyone's like, "I want a shank." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but so, so Steve um, had us go to co- ostensibly to decorate ourselves, and then we all went into them, and then he locked us in.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's what you do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then he just yeah. left us in there. Yeah, because I wanted
3: to. I mean. Uh, for for all fun and intents and purposes just to get the feeling of what it feels like you can't get out and you're trapped here and you might only be trapped here for an hour but could you imagine what it feels like to really be here for like a year two years three years life sentence you know like and just even experiencing it for an hour you guys got that didn't you
2: oh yeah we all got that
3: (laughs) That was one trick that I I used to love tricks like that to play with actors. But then I realized that sometimes it's also just about acting and you don't have to like actually live it to, to, to act.
2: <laughs> Thank God you didn't throw us in the hole. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, let's talk about the Bibb County Jail in Georgia.
3: Totally. I was so excited. So Elliot Dunwoody was a prominent businessman and... Um, filmmaker, and he knew everybody in town. The Dunwoody family has been there for a thousand years, right? And so he knew how we could film at the prison. And just to get some sort of hallway shots and some, you know, in the yard where people would go out and, like, exercise and work. And that was basically all we wanted to shoot at the prison. It was basically exteriors, you know, even though there were a few interiors. And so he arranged it for us to go one day, and when we showed up, there were so many strict rules and things that were, it was so overwhelming. I couldn't even follow the order of the rules. It was like, you know, okay, number one, you, you walk through this gate and you don't do this. You walk through this <laughs> gate, you don't do that. You walk through this gate, you don't do this. And you're like,
2: what the fuck was I
3: supposed to not do on the first
0: one?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing that I did when, when um, the, the actual real bailiff, he was, um, he was lecturing to all of us women, to like Jane Weedlin and Mink Stahl and me and Starina and Stacy. He was going, all right, ladies, um, you're, you're in the Bibb County Penitentiary. We have more than 800 highly dangerous inmates here. At any time you're in here, do not make eye contact. Do not make verbal contact with the inmates. And as he was saying this, I was standing near a desk. This was in the po- parole room and they had this like really a whole bunch of really cheesy little pads with like, like from the seventies with the graphic of like a, you know, a, a quill pen and an inkwell. And it said from the desk of the Bibb County jail, you know, making <laughs> making sure to. And so he was talking that to us and just like sort of automatically I slid my hand onto it and grabbed the pad and put it in my pocket. And then I was like, holy shit, I'm like stealing from a prison. But I wasn't about to put it back at that that time. Anyway, we're sitting there in our spike heels and our little like really tight, like sort of 50s like dresses. And um, then suddenly it was time for us to go to walk through the prison. So we're walking in a line with the bailiff. Through this never ending halls of the prison. And for anyone who's listening, this was so far before Orange is the New Black that it's not even funny. <laughs> it was, what year did Stuck come out? Was it t- 2009?
3: It was something like that. It was, oh, I no, we or shot
2: nine. it. In, I think we shot it in 2008, and I think it did come out in
3: 2009.
2: Yeah. Anyway, anyway. So we're walking through in a line behind the bailiff and he was like, you know, he kept looking back to make sure that we were okay. And then from the far end of the hall, we saw these guys all chained together, wearing striped suits, black and white striped suits and little hats, like little almost beret hats. And it looked like a scene from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And then um, Susan Traylor said, hey, is somebody else filming another movie in here and jane said oh yeah someone's filming a movie and they got closer and closer and um i said hi and then they all started cat calling and screaming and the bailiff turned around and said do not make eye contact with do not make verbal contact with the inmates <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then we were all like oh my god those are real inmates and they're wearing that
3: totally it was so surreal it was unreal it was amazing. And then we filmed there all afternoon and left and we made it out alive and you did not get arrested for stealing from the prison.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, talk about working with Mink Stoll because she was so fun to work with and you've worked with her a few times. Right?
3: <sighs> well, okay. What's amazing about Mink is... Well, okay. So I'm in post-production right now on my new feature, which was Is... The closest that I've been able to be an artist 100% since Firecracker. I didn't have anybody to answer to. I had no producers, no crazy actors, no the financiers, you know, name, go down the list. This was one of the most f- m- truest movies from conception through all the way to the the story and the script and the screen and the visuals and the editing and all of it that I've been able to. Tell us
2: what what it's called.
3: Um, Well, the title as it is today is Oliver and Evelyn Black. And it's a story that stars Xander Berkeley and Sarah Clark and Mingstall. And Xander is a, uh, an artist who is very successful, but, not so much anymore, and Oliver Black has been given a commission to make a painting or a sculpture, and his wife wakes up dead, and he, through process of creating uh, this sculpture, potentially brings her back to life. And Mink Stoll plays the art dealer. And when I was working with Mick on this most recent movie, she reminded me of something that went back to stuck with the women in prison film. She said, typically people ask her to play things that are satirical or tongue in cheek or dark comedy or campy or crazy. And she's never actually allowed to show her dramatic side. And she's one hell of an actress. Like she can be a dramatic actress. It's just nobody's ever really seen her that way. So when I asked her to do this most recent movie, uh, she didn't hesitate. Uh, And we filmed it in Maine in uh, October. And so we're now finishing it up, visual effects and score and sound design and all those things. But working with her again was so much fun because I hadn't seen her since Stuck was in the festival circuit and we would be flown places to like Outfest. Uh, It premiered in LA at Outfest and then Stuck also Uh, premiered at the Boston Underground Film Festival and Mink won the Lifetime Achievement Award. And we went to Rain Dance and uh, dozens of festivals worldwide. And hanging out with Mink at those places, we really got to know each other. And we talked about doing a a family Christmas caper comedy, which I also talked to you about around this same time, which we still haven't made, which we probably will at some point. But um, this most recent time working with Mink was really great because... I got to see her, she is one of the easiest actors to take direction. So, you know, she like walks across the screen, she does it some way, she looks at you and she says, do you want me to do that a little bit more blue, a little bit more orange, a little bit more yellow? And you say, yeah, let's just try all of them and then she'll do it and she doesn't care. She's just, you know, she loves her job. She's great at it and she's an icon. And it's so amazing to work with someone who's been in some of my favorite movies and, and to know that we're, we're collaborating. Like, there's nothing greater than, than to collaborate with artists that you admire, for sure.
2: Yeah, for sure, totally. Um, she was so much fun to work with, too. She was always in a good mood. Always.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing is when I, when I cast a movie, I try to think about who's gonna like get along, you know, because this person might be the fantastic actor for this part, but if everybody else in the scene doesn't get along with them, then at the end of the day, when we're having dinner and we're singing Kumbaya around the campfire, like we did in Casual <laughs> Club, you know, it's like we had one of the Backstreet Boys making his acting debut and Daniela C from The L Word and you and me and Jane, and we're all sitting around enjoying each other. That's the, the key, I think, to, if you're gonna collaborate and make art of any kind, to enjoy the people that you're also working with. Because yeah, you, you have a
2: really you have a great knack for that, for picking people. Yeah, I love people. it.
3: It's important, it's so important to bring people together that want to be <laughs> together. Because if you're bringing people together that don't want to be together, it will show and you'll feel it. And that's not gonna be so fun to be around.
2: Was that was, that, that was Kevin Richardson's first movie, right?
3: Correct. He had been on Broadway. He was in Chicago on Broadway.
2: Oh, I didn't know that.
3: Yeah, just like a year or two before he had been wow. in Chicago. And so I knew he was a good actor, but, and he had been trying to sort of show that he was a good actor, and nobody would believe him, because it's like, oh, what, a Backstreet Boy wants to play an alcoholic, abusive, sex-crazed cutter?
2: And, he, was, and just, he was so good. He, he was, was so good. He blew me away.
3: Totally. But so many people didn't believe it beforehand. And then when they saw it, and he did win a number of Best Actor awards at festivals, you know, then they were like, oh, wow, he's great. <laughs> you know, it like, sometimes it just takes believing in, in somebody's spirit and their talent and you see it
2: happen. He was he was so fucked up in that part. He was just like he was scary. Like when we were watching some of the scenes in the Casserole Club, which I'm um, I'm gonna. I'll have you in a second describe what that movie was about because it's so dark. That might that might be your darkest movie although <laughs> all of your movies are really well not all of them but most of them are pretty dark. I remember thinking that a boy band person was going to be in the movie and I was sort of having my doubts too and he was so nice and genuine off screen and then when he was acting he he was so intense and scary that Jane and I were watching the scenes getting filmed and we started crying but that happened a lot also in fire firecracker with like yeah. Mike Patton too i mean just like ha- how they could adapt such dark like just embody all that darkness but um yeah so describe what the what the plot you know, just do a little summary of the plot of the Castle Club, because that that was and that was a real that was a real true story too. So tell everyone how that developed.
3: Yeah, so every movie I do sort of kind of leads to the next one. So when we're in Macon, Georgia, filming stuck, we hear about a group of sort of uh, wife swappers or husband swappers, you know? And it's sort of like this this group that comes together and they bake casseroles for each other and they have big dinner parties. And then mommy and daddy might go home with someone else. (laughs) And they actually called it the Casserole Club. And it was sort of known and people were members. And we heard
2: about it all the time. Like anytime like there'd be some recipe at one of the places where we were eating, because everyone in Macon opened up their homes to us, like we'd hear about the casserole club all the time until then we're like, what is the casserole club? At first we all thought it was cooking too.
3: Totally. But no, it was about let's get cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Cooking with gas. Exactly. So then um, we, I sent the screenwriter Frankie Cranes down there to investigate the casserole club. And I don't know to the extent at which he, infiltrated the actual casserole club or whether he just observed it and used his creative spirit to create characters but we created the script together he and i and when we were filming this movie uh it, it all stemmed around the idea of it was set in 1969 and it was historically accurate and uh each costume and production design element and character were period specific And it was about these five married couples and the destruction of most of their relationships. One of the relationships got stronger throughout the film. And that was the relationship that you played opposite Hunter Bodine.
2: Yeah, and we were the ones that were the actual swingers that kind of started it. But we already, we had a a strong relationship. But everyone else's went to shit.
3: Exactly. Everybody else's fell apart. And it was really, really dark. and, And there was an accidental suicide uh there was some really terrible emotional abuse you know done between the characters in that film and and some really terrible turmoil and depression in some of the others and it's it starts off really campy and fun and there's lots of colors and food and crazy sexy things and it just gets darker and darker it's like a train wreck it's like the (laughs) the the next car hits you and it feels worse than the last car hit you you know it is just terrible and You leave that movie and you're just like, God damn. But uh, it was, because it was historically accurate and of artistic importance, was invited to be part of the United States Library of Congress's permanent collection. Uh, So it's always going to be there for eternity.
2: you got all the historically accurate um, sets.
3: (laughs) Well, one trick (laughs) is you film film in Palm Springs and you rent a mid-century modern home that's already decked out exactly in 1950s, early 60s style.
2: But then what do you tell them when you're renting it? Oh, well,
3: I told (laughs) them that we were going to be a writer's camp or like we were gonna be getting together to do some like workshopping of a story and we might be filming it, we might not. Is that okay? And they're like, oh sure, that's fine. And then so we had to sort of pretend, you know, we I put these posters on the doors outside that said, We're writing in here. Please be quiet. <laughs> or we're doing High a five. writer's <laughs> workshop.
2: But there was always, like, anytime time the door knocked, everyone, like, you'd be, like, shushing everyone, and we'd all be, like, frozen in place in case it was someone... Like, you didn't want anyone to see, like, the movie cameras or, or all but, the
3: actors. Well, that was the first time I started getting... OK, I smoke tobacco and I drink alcohol, but I don't do any other drugs. And so I started getting addicted to stealing scenes for a movie. So we would drive around town, and I remember a couple of different times, Daniela C. and Mark Booker were in in one car, and uh, Starina Johnson and and Garrett Swan were in the other car. And we would drive around until we found a house that looked cool from the outside, and we would park, and we would get out with the camera and the mics and everything and say, okay, go up to the door and just (laughs) turn around and pretend you're closing it like this is your house. And just walk naturally and perform the rest of the scene. Like you're walking out of your house. And if anybody's inside or comes to the door, just run to the car and we'll get out of here.
2: <laughs> you did you did that with me too in the opening scene of the movie. I had to come down off some random porch. And I didn't yes. know that it, I didn't know that it was a stolen scene <laughs> until right yes. now.
3: We didn't have any permission to be at any of those places. <laughs> 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 and then one time, oh my God. So Michael Mays and Susan Traylor. Who are having an affair, sort of in the last part of it, uh, are doing a sex scene in this garden, which we think is totally isolated and safe. We turn the corner, and the fucking Palm Springs Police Department is right there. <laughs> it was crazy. So, yeah, no, that that was that was insane. Doing that movie was insane, and. Uh, quite an experience. And I think that also, even though it wasn't humid, I think it was 120 in the shade. Yeah it, we night, yeah, it was
2: 120. Even at night, it was 120. Um, the other thing that I remember, about, well, I remember a lot of that, but when when we were doing the swinging sex scene in the pool and you had a whole entire like cast meeting of everyone that was gonna be in it, because it was pretty, every, it was everybody that was gonna be in the whole movie that was gonna be doing this, swing and pool party. So we had to sit down and talk about who was comfortable with what level of nudity. And um, so, you know, so some yeah, like somebody talking- said,
3: well, like somebody was like, oh, I'll show my butt. Like some guys like, I'll show my butt, butt, but not the front side. Or I'll show my boobs, but not my butt. Or there was a whole variety of answers. Yeah.
2: And then, um, so, yeah. So anyway, there was a, there was a scene where I had to um, like, there was still frolicking going on in the pool, but I had to be outside the pool and I was gonna open up Michael Mays's, um fly because I was supposed to give him a blow job. My character Florine was gonna give him, Max, a blow job. So I got down on my knees and I unzipped this fly and I reached in and I screamed so loud and dropped back and you're like, cut, cut, what? And then I started laughing hysterically because I, I, When when some people said they were going to wear socks on their dicks, I think I just thought of like, you know, like a white athletic sock. But he had some kind of a weird, fuzzy, thick, like black army sock. And I wasn't expecting to see that on his dick. Do you know what I mean? It scared the shit out of me.
3: Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So many things happen behind the scenes on any movie that it's... You can't even make a list. They're unreal.
2: Especially on your movies because they're all completely psychotic.
3: Totally, <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, like like uh, the movies that we were making after hours on the scene of um, of the Casual Club were insane. Most of this was through Jane Weedlins and my instigation. We were the ones that started it with the fake maiden form bra ad, but we didn't want. We didn't want you to know because we didn't want you to know that like the whole cast and lots of the crew were staying up until like five in the morning when we had to be on camera the next day at like nine. You know, right. we didn't want you to get nervous about it, but we made like we made like parodies of *Brokeback Mountain* and *Jaws* using the swimming pools <laughs> in the houses that were rented for the writers' retreat, and um. My favorite one was when we did Silence of the Lambs. And Jane, um, Jane and I were sharing a little casita back house. And we totally like dragged the mattresses off the bed and took the bed springs out and propped them up so that they could be the jail. And we had Nick, one of the actors, as Hannibal Lecter. And he was on, he was on like a, a moving dolly trolley thing. And we have like a, a salad spinner. Uh, like around, around his face and we had handcuffs because jane had handcuffs with her and his his arms were outside the bars and he was he was he was like um quid pro quo Clarice <laughs> 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 Susan Trailer, and um Michael Mays and a couple of the other actors hadn't even seen The Silence of the Lambs, but Jane and I could quote it verbatim, like, almost every scene. And when they saw the scenes that we were reenacting, they got, like, seriously disturbed.
3: That was amazing. Well, and I didn't know about it at all until way after the fact. And then when I saw them, like, how the hell did you guys make all these short films... Every night, like you've made like twelve short films. We've only been here for two and a half weeks. (laughs) Like, where did you find the time to do this?
2: And And they they are amazing. They all got edited too. (laughs) Totally,
3: it was crazy. Like, I can't imagine that you guys slept at all.
2: (laughs) We didn't. (laughs) It was it was too hot to sleep. Um, what? So let's talk about um. Let's talk about music and how, and how you work, because a lot of your, um, a lot of your storyboards that you've drawn, you, you would have musical soundtracks and stuff. And, you know, so what are, what are some of, what, tell, tell us about like your favorite types of music or what kind of music
4: you use for working or how you score films. Attention, super. Mega Zsa Zsa is here, and she doesn't stop at cops. She slaps away every bit of injustice, fascism, prejudice, and abuse with a flick of her opera-gloved hand. She knows where power is, in beauty, in knowledge, and the lethal combination of both. She knows seduction from deceit, what women like, and what makes men weak. She puts together a pretty package, negligees instead of negligence, rhinestones and marabou, a brocade clutch perfect for evening, a black velvet, come fuck me pump, come along, baby. She's a fist of steel crowned with an ostentatious dinner ring. Super mega jazza sprang forth full blown from the forehead of Charles Nelson Riley during an otherwise average episode of Hollywood Squares.
3: That's really cool. Uh, question. Um, when I was at CalArts for homeschool, there was a class called Jazz Editing, and it taught us how to look at editing of a scene with a rhythm. So Hitchcock would do sort of a, a wide shot and then he would go closer and closer and closer to this person, closer to that person, closer, 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 way back, you know? And there was this sort of rhythm to it that I really took to heart. And so when I am approaching anything, I see it in my mind already and I hear it that way. I hear and see the rhythm of it. But in order for that to be communicated, I have to sketch it down. So then I have to make storyboards and I have to sort of plot it out so that I make sure I get each one of those elements. And the music can be different. Jazz is one of my favorites, of course, but I listen to every genre of music and every kind of music globally Um, It doesn't matter what language or culture the music is from, if it sparks in me something that's visually rhythmic, which is interesting, it's sort of like taking the sound of the picture. And there's a line in my new movie that's in post right now where she asks, can you hear the sound of that color? And I love that idea because, of course, there are frequencies in everything. So... I try to like find out what frequency is this that I'm hearing. Is it rap, is it blues, is it jazz, is it African drumming, is it whatever it is. And then I listen to it and that informs me how I'm gonna cut it and put it together, which then informs me how I'm going to direct it and shoot it. So it's a whole thing that I do and I love it. And music is really, really important through the whole process.
2: Yeah, definitely. Music is is
3: so important. (laughs) And scoring is is also part of it. One of the, my two favorite composers are Heather Schmidt uh, and Rob Kleiner. And both of them are people that I've worked with repeatedly, whom have, every time they send me a song or an excerpt or a measure for a scene, it just fits it. I mean, I don't know how they do it. It's sort of like when you work with great actors, and they just they just come and do it. I don't know what that is. I don't need to know what it is, but I love it, and I see it, and I appreciate it, and I'm thankful for it. And it's magical. It's amazing.
2: Yeah, Rob Kleiner's um, score for Stuck was insane.
3: Yeah, so good.
2: It was like it was like total beatnik jazz.
3: Totally, and I like I, I like using musicians as actors a lot because. It's like they're, and I advise other young filmmakers to think about this too. You know, there are artists who create um, to inspire and entertain in, in a variety of ways. And just because they're not actors per se, doesn't mean they're already not performers. And it's the exact same thing. And a lot of musicians aren't asked to be in movies.
2: Typically. Yeah, Mike was, very, Mike Patton was very nervous, he he called me up after you guys talked and he was yelling like, what makes you think I can act? What makes you think I can be in a movie?
3: Yeah. And I, but I told him, I'm like, hey, you go out on stage as a character. And it's the yeah. same thing. It's I don't exactly think he realized
2: that though. I mean, he was, he was so good in, in that movie, damn.
3: Totally. Yeah, it's amazing. And I I like making music sometimes. I haven't for years, but uh, in the like 99, 2000, I did two albums, which was crazy. And it was sort of like a fun experiment in sounds and storytelling using auditorial inspiration as opposed to auditory inspiration as opposed to visual.
2: Yeah, those were great. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> so, who would you um? Who would be your dream musicians to work with
3: um, in the future? Do they have to be alive?
2: No, I was just going to say maybe they don't have to be alive because I I would say David Bowie if I was making a. Film. Oh my God!
3: Okay, if David Bowie and Sam Cooke could oh, collaborate yeah. on a score, or no, Thelonious Monk and David Bowie. Yeah. Like just some crazy ass combinations could be awesome. So good.
2: Jimi Hendrix.
3: <laughs> Jimi Hendrix and oh. Mike Patton. Or uh I mean, I don't know, there's there's so many so many great You know, it's then I look at the people who aren't so they're great, they're icons, you know, like Madonna or like Lady Gaga or like um Prince who are more modern, but I'm like, God, what would they have done if they did a rock opera? Oh, yeah. You know, but like in the style of like the wall. Yeah. You know, like those things would be really cool. I would love to do a musical someday for sure. I've never, I don't even know like what it would be, but I would love to direct a musical. And it would have to be kind of like that. It would have to be like a crazy, weird, sci-fi gothic something (laughs) 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 who knows
2: that would be fabulous um what kind of what kind of plans do you have for films after after this next one comes out are you working on stuff
3: i do i have a a female driven western that's a classic western where the the gender Roles are reversed, so all the positions of power are women, and all the laborers and prostitutes are men.
2: If you don't have me in this, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Of course.
3: (laughs) We'll discuss it. I'll send you the script. I also uh, wrote a pilot and a series uh, with Amanda Mm DiBert and uh, Pablo Diablo based on Elizabeth Bathory. uh,
2: Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah
3: world-renowned female serial killer. So there's a lot of things like on the back burners. I mean, I've got probably 12 projects on the back burners and I don't know which one's gonna be next, but they're all sort of sitting there simmering.
2: Tell us about your spiritual practices.
3: Well, I was in a, a terribly emotionally abusive relationship for 12 years and when I got out of that, I it felt really betrayed and hit and numb. And I wanted to find the piece of learning how to heal from that. And so I looked into neuroscience and I had a friend who was a shaman healer woman. And through the combination of working with the healer and learning neuro-linguistic programming and studying the effects of the mind and the body and the way all of it is put together, and then also the universe as a whole, Um, it, 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 when I say it enlightened me, I don't mean it as, as trite as that sounds. It actually like it lit something up in me. It turned the light on (laughs) it. It turned the switch on. So then I, I continued to, uh, meditate. I when I get signals and messages coming from the universe and the cosmos and the the energy around me and the frequencies and all of these things, I, I listen to them, I make note of them, I'm thankful for them and I appreciate them. And I sort of do what they say. Like somebody earlier today was asking me, oh, this movie you've just made is a masterpiece. And I said, well, I don't know if I can say that, but I can tell you that I was true to the creative energy. So the creative energy comes from wherever it comes and it comes through into me and I put it out there on the paper and in the shot and in the editing and in the images and I I put it together. And if I am true to it 100% without questioning it, that's what is truthful and it works for me. And if that's what makes something great, well, that's for someone else to decide because no matter what i do 10 percent of anybody or half or whatever will hate it so it doesn't matter as long as i'm true to the source so i like being tapped into um the world around me and the the unknown like karen said you know and and just really appreciating uh things that i can't explain but i i experience I have this this picture taped on my refrigerator that says, if this, and you fill in the blank, could be anything, is a truth of the universe, it is possible for me to experience it. You might have a belief, you might believe in whatever you believe, but you may never experience it. So those things don't appeal to me. But what appeals to me is the idea of, if I can experience that, then that must be a truth of the universe. So that's sort of the practice that I I go through in the world. And if, if I'm sensing a crazy, weird, energetic healing session where the vibrations are strong and I can feel the pulsation against my ear, I've experienced that. I don't need to understand it. I don't need to make sense of it. But I have to appreciate it and just recognize that I've experienced that. That's a truth of the universe. And that's just how it is.
2: And you're a hypnotist too, right? I
3: love doing guided meditations, which is what I call it. I mean, but you, you every,
2: hypnotized the whole cast, and I remember when we were in um, Kansas one time.
3: No, I know, but I, I call it just doing a guided meditation because every sort of meditation is hypnosis, and all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. It's not something that somebody's doing to you, it's something that they're guiding you and you are exploring yourself. So I love doing that. And I love doing it for myself. I love, just last night, I had a friend who had a, a problem and he was conflicted and he was going through something. And I said, okay, calm down and just close your eyes and let's just talk through this. And I I love the way that my voice changes when I'm doing it. A- I
2: was just going to say that. Okay, can we conclude this interview? Will you... Will you um- hypnotize or guidedly meditate like our listeners
3: okay but first you have to say in preface if you, if anybody is driving or operating any sort of sharp heavy dangerous equipment you can't do this you have to now stop don't listen yeah you, you just stop la, it
2: la, la, la. just plug up your ears and go so, la, la, la.
3: but if you're if you're in a place where you can be comfortable then what i allow you to do And what I would invite you to allow yourself to do is to just just take a moment and relax, and just feel your body there, however it is. Maybe you've had a long day, could have been fighting all those things on the computer and those other things and all the things that come at you when you don't want them or you're not ready for them. Whatever it is, maybe it's something that hurts. Maybe you have a, sh- a, a shoulder or a pain somewhere in your body. Maybe there's a, something happening. You can just allow yourself to relax and take notice of what that place is. And when you do and when you notice that place, you can reach out to it with a very gentle embrace and you can hug it and thank it for showing you that whatever it's showing you and you can just embrace that and you can just fill it and fill the whole area with love and compassion and empathy even if you don't understand it maybe this this part has been causing you great difficulty or pain all day long that's okay you can thank it say thank you for being there thank you for showing me this embrace it and soon enough when you allow yourself to have that time embracing that part of you, it will relax and dissolve and float and disappear, however it wants into all of awareness. And then once that happens, you can just invite yourself to return to the room just as you were and feel a little bit lighter and you can go around the rest of the day or night feeling a little bit lighter a little bit more calm or content, or at least in love with all the parts of you that you know you have, and you'll always have. Yay. Yeah.
2: I got all woozy from that. Well, it was really great to have you, Steve.
3: Thank you very much. I am honored to talk to you in this format.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you guys, you can go back to driving or boozing it up or whatever you were doing. Totally. Uh, this, is, this has been The Devil's mm-hmm. Music Podcast, and that was director Steve Walderson. Before He's we got- go,
3: let me tell you, I for the time being, I have made a list of movie links and passwords so that anybody who is stuck at home and wants something new to watch can track down on my Facebook or Instagram or Twitter the, the, my film library I've made available for free, complimentary to everyone on earth.
2: Give us your social links.
3: Okay, so dekenga.com is my website, D-I-K-E-N-G-A.com, dekenga.com, And on Instagram, it's at Dikenga, D-I-K-E-N-G-A. And Twitter is at S. Balderson. And then on Facebook, I'm just Steve Balderson.
2: Okay. Thank you, Steve Balderson. Thank you. Mwah. Mwah. <laughs> Bye.
1: So, how'd you like Steve? He's one of my favorite humans on the face of the earth. Check out his movies, classes, and lectures at dekenga.com. You can buy his films there too. That's D-I-K-E-N-G-A.com. Other places you can find him on the web are at SteveBalderson.com. His Instagram is at dakenga and his Twitter is at S. Balderson. Check him out!
0: The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at Pantheon Podcasts. Com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks.